Listener Production. Want to learn how to feel good whilst attracting what you want into your life? I have designed a course for you using the manifesting methods I use daily. This is an audio course, so it can be easily listened to in the car, going for a walk or on your daily commute. And I've designed printable worksheets with exercises to help you practice what you're learning. All the info on the course is in this episode show notes, or you can go to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com to purchase Manifest Your Greatness. Sarah Harden is the CEO of Hello Sunshine, a media company co-founded by actress and producer Reese Witherspoon, dedicated to producing and promoting female-led stories across film, television and digital platforms. Her work is focused on elevating diverse voices and perspectives, empowering women and creating meaningful change in the entertainment industry. In this captivating conversation, Sarah and I discuss the power of storytelling, the importance of representation, and the challenges of navigating a male-dominated industry. We also dive into the inspiration behind Hello Sunshine's hit shows, such as Big Little Lies and The Morning Show, and the impact they've had on audiences around the world. Reese came in to meet us because she sort of had this idea for a storytelling-led brand for women. And I, we spent a lot of time as I were in anime, comedy, gaming, a bit more male-centric, but we'd been thinking for a couple of years, there's got to be a storytelling-led brand for women. And so I met with Reese. It was one of these, like, right things, right time. And I just saw this giant gap, right, in this very crowded content landscape. And she saw the same gap. We saw it from a different angle, but it's the same one where we're 70% of financial purchasing decisions yes. in the home brands, yeah. cars, right? Like fueled by the media business. And this is a gap to build a company in. So we talked about changing the narrative for women. That's our mission. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Sarah's passion for promoting female-driven narratives and creating a more inclusive media landscape is truly inspiring. My hope is that this conversation with Sarah will spark a deeper understanding of the importance of diverse representation in media and encourage us all to use our voices to create positive change. Sarah Harden, you grew up in Geelong, which is an hour drive from where I am now. You are a twin with your brother, Scotty. Can you tell us a bit about the younger years? Yeah, well, I'm the twin eldest of five siblings. So, I mean, I look back, I had a pretty ideal childhood in so many ways. You know, I grew up in Geelong. My mum was one of seven. My dad was one of five. Oh, so wow. I grew up like all of my aunts and uncles and cousins were sort of in and around Geelong and Melbourne. My grandparents had grown up there and... My grandparents had a house at Bowen Heads, which, you know, I used to, I just memories. I used to think that that was like a five hour flight. It's literally 25 minutes to drive <laughs> my house that I grew up in to Bowen where I have a house now. So I, I mean, um, you know, that's been my Australian home base. You know, I left Australia in 97 
and I've never lived back there, but I've maintained that connection. Um, yes. my, my brothers and I bought a house when I was in my early 20s that we shared. It's just a really happy childhood. My parents divorced when I was probably 12 and my father remarried. And then I have two sisters who are quite, they keep me young because they're, it's my, it's funny. My kids are like 19, 17 and 13. And my sister's kids are like six, three and like 12 weeks old. So it's really nice. Um, but my sisters are sort of 15, 17 years younger than I am. So yeah, I was the babysitter when they were babies. Um, but I'm very close to my two sisters. So yeah, I have a twin brother and the middle one is a brother who actually lives in LA. I'm really oh. lucky. And two sisters who now live in Western Australia. Was that hard for you when your parents divorced and also being one of quite a few kids? I mean, was it that hard for your parents to navigate as well? It was. It was very surprising as a kid. And, you know, obviously I'm, <laughs> I'm older now. I'm in my 50s. You understand these things with hindsight. But, yeah, it rocked, it rocked our world. Our families were very intertwined as well. And um, my grandparents were friends and grew up together. And, you know, it's a small community. Mm. And so I think when that happens, like, it's different for friends and family friends, but mm. my parents did a really good job of navigating it. And my dad lived close by. And so I think they did a really good job of like whatever the best version of a divorce is for kids. And it's one of my dad's here right now, actually uh, on spring break for a week. And, you know, we saw him really regularly. He picked us up and dropped us off at school on his days but yeah, it was like really as a 12 year old, it was hard. I mean, one of the, the grief things I feel is I don't remember growing up in a house where my parents were together. Like yes. I don't remember them in the house together. I, I have lots of happy memories at my family home with my mom and lots of happy memories in my family home with my dad. Um, but they, I think, did a really good job. And, they, you know, we, they, we both grew up, my dad built his whole business in Geelong and my mum was in commercial, where she was a nurse at Geelong Hospital when we were much younger, an intensive care nurse. And then as we got older, as she divorced, she decided it didn't really work for having three children on your own. Yes. <laughs> Parts of the week, being gone at nights. And so she um, became, you know, her brother uh, had a real estate business and so she built, she became a real estate broker in, um, or agent, although I'm using my American words, uh, and in residential. So I remember going to a lot of auctions with her and then she worked in commercial real estate and, you know, she built that business with my uncle Guy and until she died, you know, uh, in her like mid, mid forties. Yeah. When I was probably 20, 23 years, I mean, I will never forget it. She was diagnosed with cancer like a week before my little brother's graduation from high school. As you mentioned, you had both your parents that worked and so you saw that and you're obviously a big businesswoman now. In hindsight, how do you think that affected you, seeing these two people that you obviously looked up to with jobs that they did well in? What did you take out of that? Oh, it was such a gift when I look back on it. I had two very entrepreneurial parents from necessity, honestly, and my dad you know, it's funny. I was, I was talking to him about it this week, actually reminding me, like he put himself through college, like playing poker and, um, and he was a lawyer. And when I was very young, he worked as a lawyer at Alcoa, but then he went out on his own and built a real estate business. And the booms of the bus times, I remember living through the Pyramid Building Society failed in Geelong. Yes. And, and, and I was like traumatic for the Geelong community. I was probably 15, I think. Clearly my father had a lot of money in Pyramid so you see the booms and the busts of an entrepreneurial mm. life. And then my mum had been a nurse and again went out on her own. And 
I think the real gift was my parents were very transparent about both of them were for different reasons. My my brother and I both worked in my dad's office at different times. My brother went on to work with my dad for many, many years. But but my mum also was someone who sat us around the kitchen table and said, this is my family budget for this is our family budget. Like she literally said, really? here's, here's where we can afford to go on holiday. Here's how... I knew the arrangement, you know, my, my, through my parents and how they funded our education. And I learned about taxes, <laughs> like how much money you have to pay taxes sitting around the kitchen table. When I was probably 13 and, um, and making those decisions about what we were going to do as kids in a family. And, and I look back and think what a gift like that was. Mm. And, and I think she did a really good way. She never burdened us with like, I never worried and yes. kind of, beautiful upbringing. I had amazing education. I was very fortunate, like a real, like solid middle-class had a, you know, roof over our heads and I had amazing education and that was really important to my parents. And so they talked a lot about like, but where the times we would be like, can we go to Bali? <laughs> you'd, you'd say, no, that's not on the cards for our family this year, especially in the early years. And they were, t- they were both tough years for my, um, both my parents. But it's interesting that you perceived everything, like even when your parents said to you, oh, you know, we can't go to Bali at the moment. And I think from doing research, you went to Geelong Grammar, which is quite an affluent school. So you would have people around you that are like going here, there and everywhere. And to then be in a situation where you weren't able to go to Bali, you didn't sit there and think this is like this lack mentality and then kind of grow up having this scarcity mindset around money, you, and it seemed like your siblings, you really kind of dived into what your parents were doing and started understanding the ins and outs of it more and used that in a business perspective. But it's interesting the way that we, you can have two siblings and they go through nearly the same thing, but the way that they perceive it can be very different but yeah. you came out perceiving it in a way that has allowed you to flourish, which is such a, a great thing. Look, I would say I had a life of such privilege, right? I mean, I use the example, I remember going, I was like, everyone, I want to go to Bali. It seems like everyone's going to Bali. It was the conversations and the transparency that was notable, right? Yes. Around the trade-offs that you make. You know, I always think the gift about just talking in normal terms mm. about money and normalising discussions around that in ways that were not... I think we're ultimately like really healthy Mm. and that in a life of really relative privilege, like being deeply appreciative Mm. and not wasting any moment. And I really, I I know that about my education was not wasting any of the educational opportunities that that I have. And both my parents leaned in and worked very hard. Interesting context, right? My mum was one of seven children and two boys and five girls and not all of them could go to private school. Yeah. And it wasn't just a schooling education thing. It was a a signal of the times, like the options for girls when she grew up. It was like, are you going to be a teacher or a nurse if you're going to work? Her four sisters were all either teachers or nurses. She didn't even have a conversation about that. And so just knowing that there were conversations that Mm. we could have and there were options and that was just honestly a product of the times more than anything. You said that you wanted to be a journalist, but you ended up changing that and you, there was a time that you ended up at Boston Consulting in Melbourne, which is a management consultancy business. And that was kind of one of the areas that 
you felt like, oh, this is really right for me and I can do this. And there was a senior partner at the time that saw the light in you. Can you tell us a bit about that? Talk about imposter syndrome. I hadn't done <laughs> commerce. I hadn't done law, all the typical. And I, and I think the consultant firms hire from a very wide range, but they were pretty, they were hiring from pretty hard skill degrees. So engineering, commerce, law, finance, um, and I was a very rare, and I found out much later, like a total experimental hire. I was one of the first arts politics hires. Wow. But I remember starting thinking, I, I don't belong here. I, I mean, I, I literally, I laugh. I'd just turned 21, 22, and the only time I'd used Excel was to do my 21st <laughs> list to like type in the names and whether check if whether they were going <laughs> I mean, it's such a funny thing, playing. imposter syndrome, because you're always like, they're going to find out that I'm no good. Yeah, oh, find out. yeah, and I took in a box of things like you were talking about, like, bring, you know, whatever. I didn't unpack that box. I had it on a shelf for like, yeah. Just in I case thought, you had to make a quick exit. See ya. Oh, yeah, totally. I knew it was my time. See ya. Totally. And I, and it was that, that, you know, that supposition that all the hard skills is what matters. And I had a real gap there. And I did, I did compared to the other graduates. I was in a client meeting and I was the most junior person in the room, but I talked a little bit in the meeting and, and we after his, and, and again, this partner pulled me aside and it's the first time I worked with him. He's a Sydney partner and he pulled me aside and he just, oh my God, it still makes me emotional a bit. Um, and he just said, I saw what you did in that room and you've really got something. Nothing can replace judgment. He sort of basically said your judgment was impeccable. Your poise, when you spoke, you had something to say, like, I just, like, I've got my eyes on you. And, and, and those skills are as important in business as the work you do behind the scenes, right? And basically just saw, I think, what was a strength of mine? Mm. A really high EQ. I could read a room. I, I didn't have to take up the air in the room. I wasn't trying, like, I just, I knew when I had something to say. And, I, and, I, and you know, hats off, I was, to the team I work with, a created an environment where I, I I was asked to contribute in that meeting, but I, I remember thinking just the fact he saw that in me and went out of his way and I barely worked with him again, but it really stuck with me. I mean, I ended up having a very successful number of years at BCG. I got pretty good on my Excel skills. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting when I applied to Harvard business school and I got accepted, I got a conditional acceptance because they were worried I didn't have enough of an accounting background. And it's interesting. I, I went to a dinner here a couple of weeks ago in LA with a bunch of people from the business school, including the Dean. And I was telling the story. I was like, I mean, it was, and again, that same thing came up. I was like, wow, am I, I had to go do an accounting course. I had a conditional acceptance and I had to go do like a 15 week accounting course before I started. And I went off to business school going, oh my God, is everyone going to have all these other finance skills? And, you know, I ended up graduating in the top of my class. And again, I brought other skills to the table. Yeah. And a lot of that was the thinking on my feet. And at Harvard, they do a lot in the case method. So there's a lot in the room and the way you react and talk and make the case and having an opinion about something, forming your own point of view on something. And um, that encouragement was Mm. unbelievably informative. It's a funny Um, thing, isn't it, when someone sees the light in you? And I think that's such an important thing to highlight because it's anything from a teacher at a school that can point that out to a child and change that person's life. I mean, I've spoken to so many people on this podcast and one of the big things that they always say is there was someone that believed in me. Obviously, we need to believe in ourselves, but that belief that is coming from someone else 
is just that sometimes little push that we need to get us further in life. And I remember even at this media company that I work at, where I knew that I was going to do this podcast and I started it and the head of podcasting said to me, you know, you're really good at interviewing. And I knew it in my mind, but having Mm -hmm. someone of authority say that to you, it just gives you that confidence to go that little bit further. So I think even you being such a big businesswoman now and having so many people under you, I wonder, do you now ensure that you do that when you see that people are needing maybe to be told that they're doing such a great job or doing what you had done to you? I mean, absolutely. And I will say, I'm so lucky. I had so many people like, honestly, I think back from first grade, teachers were unbelievably formative for me. I loved elements of school and it was so important to me. Playing sports, playing team sports, so important. And the experience of being on a team. But today, like I really look as part of the joy of my job. And it's one of the things I've tried to really practice over the last 10 years. And And we have a practice internally too of like, and it's something I really, when I mentor, when I, when I'm having a mentor conversation with someone, I, I often come back to this theme, which is just less judgment about ourselves and others and more noticing. So I really try and notice more internally. And when I notice something about someone and sometimes even judgments about people can be heavy weights on someone. Right. And so I try and lighten it, like just noticing, mm. God, I notice what you said and did there. I noticed that you did this. And so frequent, more noticing. So our mission, right, is both later to our mission, but we talk about it's not just what we do, it's how we do it. So I try and often reinforce and notice the how people are doing. We talk a lot about and we celebrate as a team all the what's we do. We launch a TV series. It does really well. We launch a film. We launch a social campaign. We win a brand deal. We talk about that in staff and others. But I, I try my, in my noticings to say, God, I know I saw you how you supported that colleague mm. in the room, right? I, I heard I, I heard that you were in that very difficult meeting with a client who mm. treated you badly and how well you handled that. That's just a general practice. And I, I often say to people, we have to do a better job as women is doing that for ourselves mm. and shifting that judgment to curiosity and noticing, because I think sometimes it's like, oh, the judgment is like, I can't get this done. I've been procrastinating. I'm not getting it done. And then it's like the spiral is I'm not good at this. And, mm. and that could be a spreadsheet. It could be getting a PowerPoint deal done. It could be responding to a difficult email the judgment, it, it always ends up in worthiness, right? Like I'm not good enough. I'm not attending enough. Everyone else is doing their job. I can't, whatever it is, right? I don't want to make that call. I've been avoiding this person. The noticing is like, oh, wow. I really notice I don't have the energy for this. What's behind that? Yeah. Am I worried when I call this difficult person, they're going to yell at me and I'm just really not in a place today. I don't have the capacity. So it just flips the lens of like, we're the harshest judges on ourselves mm. as women and we turn it into these spirals of worthiness. It's not where they should go. And so just lightening the way that we look at ourselves and we judge and noticing like they're important data points about yourself. You know what? It's the end of the day. You don't want to make it about that difficult phone call. But if you notice that about yourself, sometimes you might be better making that call at the start of the day or yes. some days. And we talk about this as a team is like, I don't have the capacity for that conversation mm. right now. I am low capacity. I'm going to probably say something I regret <laughs> yeah. because I don't have the capacity for yeah. it because I'm up to here. 
being in and tune. You have yeah. low capacity for lots of reasons, right? Like absolutely. I've got a team of 30, 40 in Nashville. I've got a team of moms like returning to school, like the 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 trauma of school shootings here. Oh, like I've had a team yeah. that's just has so low capacity right now. Yeah. Like I'm like, guys, grace to each other. Like yeah. and that's just one example. Like it's it's what's happening in the world, what's happening in our homes. I got parents, COVID, like again, we can turn that lens. It's just a healthier way of like, let's notice your energy, what you do and don't have capacity for. Okay. What's another way yes. to approach it, which doesn't weigh ourselves down with this negative self-judgment. It's so, so interesting. I think one thing that you said as well that I find really interesting, and I think it'd be really good for people to hear is that you went into that job, you were studying and you had a different sort of degree to everyone else that was coming in with these kind of like businessy, hardcore kind of finance degrees. And you've gone and done your own kind of studies here and there to get to where you needed to be. But you don't need to always do that cookie cutter, be a journalist to need to go here or do, you know, you can have some skills that you just happen to be really good at. Someone notices them and gives you the opportunity. I, I, I think that's really important too, that we're not so backwards with, oh, you must have studied this and you must have done that because a lot of people do and doesn't make them good at, at the job. There's innate skills that we're good at that, yes, we go to uni and do this and that and then we might go and study something else, but it doesn't have to always be those certain things. I would love to hear what you think about that. Oh, I think it's so true and I think it's so gendered as well. Yeah. I think all the research shows like when, you know, women need feel like they need to have 90% of the skills to apply for something and men need to have 40 or whatever the data yeah, is, yeah, right, yeah, to say that they're that. qualified for something. I always think back to my daughter, right? I have this amazing daughter. She's 19. She was like really naturally talented at certain things. She was like a prodigious reader from the age of like two. It was crazy. It came naturally to her. Yeah. And I remember her first soccer game when she was five and she walked off and she's like, I'm terrible at soccer. Like I'm not doing it. And I was like, what are you talking about, dude? You've literally never picked a soccer ball. This is your first time. But she had this benchmark of reading that came so naturally to her. So the notion was like when she walked on, I'm like, no, no, this is what you're here for to learn. The next five years, you're going to learn soccer and everyone's learning together, right? It's learning. But she had this lens for her experience in another, in another field, which was, I think, reading and school, which came to her easily that, that when she didn't walk onto the soccer field and kick five goals, she was like, I'm terrible. And I, you know, I was like, wow, isn't that interesting? Right. And that's just the lens of who she is. Right. And I think if you apply that to business, I think that exists all the time, mm. right? Where like for me, and, and I think, you know, another anecdote, I remember going to business school and I talked to one of the partners and it's funny, my mum was was dying right around as when I was applying to business school and I ended up deferring and 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 my mum did die. And I def- I stayed an extra sort of six, nine months working at, at another year. So I was a very senior associate because I stayed for like a fourth year, which a lot of people don't do before they go off to business school. And I got to, there was a conversation that said, do you want to go through straight through to consultant? Like, do you want to go to business school? And I remember going to get some advice from a partner, Danny Dow. And he said, you should go. And I said, why? And he said, look, you haven't had that finance training. You're going to keep asking yourself or assuming that everyone else knows so much more than you because you didn't do a commerce degree. The reality is they, is it a little bit of knowledge they have, but you just need to go do that for yourself so you can stand and own the knowledge that you have instead of focusing on what you don't know. And I do think it's so much more a mindset and it's why I look so much when we hire for 
I call it the athlete abilities. I don't mean that literally as a sports person. <laughs> I mean, are you willing to learn? Yes. Are you willing, willing to, do to the work? Learn, and, yes. And I do think this is Janet. I do think women come in thinking they need to know so much yeah. more than they actually do. That was me coming in. BCG knew who they were hiring. They knew I wasn't a finance graduate. I actually did get the training, right? They staffed my cases so I could learn as I go. Like, you know, and look, I had to play catch up and do some extra work on the side, right? Versus some of my other folks. And then I had guys and women I was working with who could run a model because they'd done some investment banking, they'd done finance courses, and they couldn't like, and they clammed up in a room because they didn't know how to talk to clients, right? So we all have strengths. I think we spend so much time focusing on where we're not strong. And, and I think as you go through your career, firstly, you, you, you do some, you do an Enneagram, you do a Myers-Briggs, you learn all your tendencies and your yeah. styles and you realize like, you know, when I used to sit there late at night going, why can't I finish page 25 to 50 of that legal agreement? I'm like, I don't have an attention to detail. I can grind through operational stuff, but there's a, a point where like, I know my style, you know I know my strengths. So I'm not well. going to judge that about myself. Yeah. I'm like, how do I work on things that totally leverages? And if I know I have to read a 50 page document, I got to wake up and do it at 8.30 yeah. in the morning. <laughs> I'm much more likely to like have the discipline to plow through it. I do want to go back and talk about your mum, though. You've brought that up a couple of times and the fact that she did die at such a young age, which means that you weren't that old either. And no. I think to lose a mother is one of the most horrific things that we can all go through and a hard thing because they're our mum. And I wonder for you how you navigated those waves of grief. You know, what, I, what I'm grateful for around it. Um, she didn't die suddenly. She got, I mean, she got diagnosed with cancer when she was 45 and she died eight months later. So it wasn't long. And I had this like really direct and straightforward. So we, we, we talked about everything and we navigated that together as a family. And she'd been a nurse. She had amazing sisters who were nurses and her brothers who lived locally. Like we went to the Gawler Foundation as a family and did like, and it was the first time a a family had like gone and got this, it was in the Yarra Valley. And we talked all about the process of her, you know, if she was, she was trying, she worked very hard, a lot of alternative therapies. And she said, I want to heal into life, back into life if I can, but let's talk openly about healing into death. And I think sometimes the cancer journey is so loaded for patients, right? If they don't end up surviving the feeling like you found them, we tried to create that space with her and, you know, I'll never forget sitting around in her bed in the last week of her life with my my two brothers and laughing and her promising, like, and also just her saying, I mean, this is, this is something we would never have chosen, but if I do die, and it was at that point, it looked like she would, she's like, this will be, she said, this will be the making of you three. And I was horrified. And I said, mom, you can't <laughs> say that. And she said, look, this is, all of our greatest fears and, um, but we got to talk about it and, you know, where I got to hear, she said to us, like, everything we have within you, you have everything within you, you have everything you need. And she just had total confidence in us. And, and it was the greatest fear. I mean, it was devastating and it was devastating for our family. You know, she was a very, she's the sixth of seven kids in birth order, but a very, important figure. My cousins were so close to her. I mean, 
she's just a really warm, amazing person. But I, I come back and I say, and I'm really, as I've gotten older too, even more grateful as I look at the fraught relationships some of my friends have with their mothers who are still alive. I had 23 years of a mother and I still have my father who gave me the greatest start in life. And I think in her death, and I don't know how she did it. Like we talked about her death in a way that had to have been very difficult for her, but it allowed us to, to thrive and to know how much we were honoring her life by doing that. And my brothers and I, you know, we talk about that a lot. Our children, we talk about that with our children. She's a, I think when you're 23 and kind of the worst thing you can imagine happening to you happens. And and that's what it felt like to us at the time. It does give you a fearlessness. Mm. And, and she, that's when she said, this will be the making of you. She's like, just be bold. And I, and I feel very grateful to that doing that with this unbelievable foundation of love and support from a very large extended family. And, you know, I have so many aunts and uncles and, um, you know, my dad and on both sides of the family and, and siblings who are amazing and my two half sisters and, you know, my stepmother. And, you know, I, I think you got to learn to, I'm, I'm so fortunate. And if there's one thing my life has given me is just the gratitude of, of, of that. And, the importance of maintaining like just really healthy family relationships. And that's the, that's my Mm. number one priority is my family, my immediate family, and then my extended family. And when I graduated from Harvard Business School, Dean Kim Clark on graduation day said a quote, which I, I think he says, he said most graduations, but he said no success in business will ever make up for a failure at home. Yeah. So true. And I wrote that down on a piece of card. I have it literally next to my desk here, every desk I've ever had. And, you know, I'm, I'm here because, you know, I had the gift of a unbelievable home life, you know, even with all the stuff that happens to anyone, (laughs) none none of us escape hardship. And I come back to that, like no success in business will ever make up for a failure at home. That's the quote that I live by. I think it's so beautiful that your mom told you that everything you ever need is always inside of you. What just an unbelievably worldly woman and how in touch she was to be able to tell that to her kids. I mean, I I live by that, but I feel like a lot of people sometimes miss it. But when you're told that, especially by someone that's your mother, she really was setting you up to be fearless and know that you don't need anyone else. You've got yourself and everything you, you always need to access is there inside of you. It was the most unselfish thing she could have said. And I realised that as a mother, right? Like, you know, my daughter went to college this year. Selfishly, I just want to keep them home and fully dependent on me. (laughs) And I know my job, I love my daughter is like this unbelievable. I'm proud of all my kids. You know, she's just the first one to leave home, but um, she's so independent. She's so amazing. And I know that's my job is to raise this self-determining being, but it's a, my sacrifice, yeah. right? I, I, you know, I don't want to say is don't leave, stay at home. And I, I do think the grace and gift of yeah. her in her offering that to my brothers and I, and, and I know she believed it, right? Yeah. Cause she signaled to that, you know, every single day, she's just amazingly attentive. I mean, you know, who was also, and it's a great model for me, like 
she was also working really hard. Mm. She wasn't there every day when we got home from school. You know, she was doing life. And I'm very, you know, coping, I think. And I talked to a lot of women in mid-career around like coping with the guilt. You know, mom, and I mean, all of those conversations. And I often go back and I'm like, I, I always felt very secure in the love of both my parents. Um, and I think that's the biggest gift you can just give to your children. And, and the sense that you see who they are and you think they're going to be fine. We need to talk about Hello Sunshine, which is this fabulous, fabulous media company that you are the CEO of. Reese Witherspoon was the founder. It's just doing so many wonderful things, but I would love for you to explain a bit about it, what it is, how it helps women, why that was such a big part of putting it together and how you and Reese even came together to have Hello Sunshine exist how it is now. You know, I guess probably about six and a half years ago. It's interesting. I'd been like my going to business school and then it took me to starting a company with a couple of guys from MIT. And I was sort of at the intersection of media and tech and entertainment. That was what where my real curiosity took me out of business school. And I decided to stay here in the US. And I ended up, you know, at Fox and News Corp for a long time and then working for you know, someone I really admire, Peter Chernan, who'd been the COO of Fox for many years and then left to form his own company, the Chernan Group. And my job was running a venture called Otter Media where we were mm. building next generation media brands. So Crunchyroll and global anime brand, full screen to be creative business. And and so we, and in LA, and Reese came into Midas because she sort of had this idea for a storytelling led brand for women. And I, we spent a lot of time as I in anime, comedy, gaming, a bit more male centric, but we'd been thinking for a couple of years, there's got to be a storytelling led brand for women. And so I met with Reese. It was one of these like right things, right time. So I've got this idea and I, and it's very hard to start media companies from scratch. Yeah. Like, so we spent a lot of time looking for assets to buy that we could build yes. on. Right. I mean, they just, they require a lot of capital. But when I saw Re- met Reese, I was like, wow, this is not from scratch. She has a big social following. She'd had a very successful career, obviously, as an actress and also as a producer. But she wanted to not just build a production company. She wanted to build a media company. And the idea was, and was born of her frustrations, yeah. right, of these conversations that, like, we've got one women's project or meeting a creator and and – and I just saw this giant gap, right, in this very crowded content landscape. And she saw the same gap. For, we saw it from a different angle, but it's the same one where she was very early on social. She saw all of her fans on social. You look at all of the stats about box office and media consumption, right, and and at least half women, in some cases women are over-indexing plat- certain platforms, right, some social platforms. But then you looked at how media was formed and who was making the decisions and who were the protagonists. And it was this giant gap. Well, like if we're 50% of consumption and we're 70% of financial purchasing decisions yes. in the home brands, yeah. cars, right? Like fueled by the media business. But you have the stats where like one to 2% of venture capital is going to women founders and you have less than, you know, 6% of directors and women and all the stats at that time. And, and Reese just couldn't even get more than one project with a women you know, they said, we've got our one women-fronted movie. And I just remember we were talking about it. It's like, we've had all of this media that centred male protagonists and all the green light committees and decisions were structured in a patriarchy. Like, we're missing something. Like, we're missing something. We're missing huge opportunities. And this is a gap to build a company in. So 
We talked about changing the narrative for women. That's our mission. That storytelling can really change culture. And it starts with representing representation. Like who are the protagonists? Is the woman driving the story? Does she have agency? How many women, right? Like Risa just started, was about to go into the first season of Big Little Lies. She'd never been at the top of a call sheet with another actress. Wow. Like that's crazy. Yeah. In 20 years of making incredible movies, right? And you think of Big Little Lies, it's a smash hit, yeah. right? Those themes of five women and the relatability in school parking lots and drop off and drop, that's familiar to so many women, those themes, right? It's not hard. So we talked about you start with representation, but that's not enough. You've got to connect that to authentic authorship. And that's what we talked about, addressing the gap in authorship. Who has the power creatively to tell these stories? And so we set out and we said, like, if we're going to build a business that is about premium content and storytelling, but also build relationships directly with consumers, because we thought if we're going to build a company, it's not enough just to make content. We have to, in a crowded landscape, help take responsibility consumers showing up for that content, whether it's dropping on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or whether it's on a social, on Instagram or TikTok or at a live event, right? We've got to bring audiences to everything we do. And so we launched our scripted division and then Reese's Book Club social handles, which again, very authentically connected Mm. back to Reese. You know, that's, she developed Gone Girl and Wild from books. She's just a natural reader, like prolific. And so we said, let's just, set an expectation and temp all these books, knowing books very strategic for us to be able to two or three times a year option one of those books and and go turn into film or TV series. And that's the core that we built the company around. And, you know, we talk about what we do, but then the what we do is how do we create a company that's authentically authored? So having a diverse team, and that doesn't mean it's just women. We have amazing men that work at the company, right? It's not just... Um, Who's in our, like, who's in our writer's rooms? Whose stories are we choosing to amplify and tell? And we're always very, people sometimes use a shorthand about our company that says by women for women. That's not who we are. We center women's stories. Yeah. Put women at the center of the story. That's what we talk about. But those stories, Daisy Jones and the Six, it centers a woman protagonist, but it's for everyone, right? It's for everyone. And part of that is like, we never talked for decades and decades about media that centered men's stories, that that was just for men. Mm. It's premium storytelling. We center women's stories as we grow and build the company. We're trying to tell a fuller range of stories because when you had so few things being greenlit that had a woman at the center, it's just a very narrow, narrow range. Forget people of color, LGBTQIA stories or unlikable heroines, complex heroines, right? It's it's not just the rom-com where, where they're a ditzy person but with agency and she runs a tech company whatever it is like and so I think the first five years of the company was really about how do we get stories into production and get made because we can't deliver on our mission unless we can get things made and done and then how do we build authentically under the hood everything has the promise of our brand with a woman at the center yes driving the story and you know and as we do that we're trying to uplift and give voice to people who've been structurally silenced from our media ecosystem for the last you know decades and decades and decades. I look at your career and you know we spoke a lot about your beginning and you sold the business a few years ago and it was written that it was sold for 900 million dollars and I just think to myself mm-hmm. oh my god but do you look back and think about 
the stories that we've covered, like your mother, that lovely man that saw the light in you. Can you believe what you've done? Like, how do you, you feel when you reflect on your life? It's shocking to me, right? Like I, and yeah, it was about 18 months ago. So it's not that, it's not that long ago. And and look, we, we, we sold the, it, I sort of think about we, when Reese and I first talked about the company, we had this 20 year vision. And so first five years were just the build. We're in the second five years. We're still on the build and we're, we're just still. So I, I'm in the work in the sense, like there's no sort of sitting back on the beach yes. and drinking a pina colada. Although I did definitely have a few cocktails after we sold the company. And so we're still in it. And um, to look back and create this clear path like I, I've never believed this is where I would be. I just wake up every day. I love the work that I do. I I put it in my full heart and I'm always really clear about what I wanted and mm. why. And I just want to enjoy the process of it, right? And feel like I was building and doing worthwhile things with my time. And I worked so hard. I didn't want to also be that person that like woke up when there were, you know, no success in business will ever make up for failure. I didn't want to wake up you know, when I was 50 years old and like have unhealthy family life or, you know, whatever it is, right. Or mortgage my health. And there's a lot of balancing that goes into that when you have put your heads down and it's, you know, it's, it's a lot to build. What I love about Hello Sunshine is we've built a company around decency to Mm -hmm. each other. And when we set out, I said, you know, when we've had the first conversations with Reese and And I always think, wow, I'd love to create a workplace that I would have loved to have worked in Mm. the last 20 years. And we don't always get it right. Like it's so hard. It's humbling managing people and managing teams. But we, it's what drives me and us to wake up every day. And Reese, she's so, from the very first conversation, she's truly motivated to leave this business better than where she found it. And, you know, I call her the convener in chief. She brings us all together. She works so hard. I mean, She's in it daily in such a collaborative way. I, I love our team. We're so collaborative, but we're really good humans mm. um, to each other. And that's our culture. There's no brilliant assholes uh, that survive at Hello Sunshine. I kind of come back and I say, I remember when we sold the company, I was like, mum, you were right. Mm. If you're decent, you know your why, you wake up every day knowing why you're there. Um, you got to stomach a lot of shit yeah. along the way. I think as a woman in mid-career, like very difficult stuff, like very unfair mm. treatment. I look back, but I can't, I'd always be, be like, okay, what's my responsibility? What's the work I have to do to put myself in the position yes. that I want to be in? How do I be effective? And just acknowledging I have great structural privilege with the education I had as a white woman. And I hold that responsibility to then create different conditions for the people coming after me. Mm. And that, that's my why. If you just focus on yourself and your intentions yes. and have some faith and confidence, it doesn't always work out, but... But you get there. What's the best advice that you have ever been given? The most impactful, mm. a woman entrepreneur, a CEO. When I was at business school, the second year course was called Women in Business. And I was the first year that they did. It was a field study course, which you just had one, two hour meeting a week. And they just brought in, Myra Hart did it. She was an amazing professor there. She just brought in a different woman CEO every week to talk for two hours about her career. And then we could ask her questions. And it was astonishing. I had never, never had the opportunity to sit and talk to a woman CEO. 
Like, isn't that crazy? crazy. It's 25 years old. Big yes. companies, the yes. CEO of Staples, yes. the CEO of a, a, a and small and small companies, two small businesses. But one woman, she was in her 70s. She said, look, this is a piece of advice. Just think of your life as a series of 10 five-year careers from the age of 20 to 70 or 25 to 75. So it's not linear. And she's like, you're in the first five years or the second five years if you're a little old like I was. But there might be five-year points of that where she talked about she took an off-ramp to deal with her sick mother when she was in her 50s. She talked about finding a partner and she's just not linear and mm. just you got 10 five-year careers. So y- you might have parts of those five-year careers that you have children and you might need to work differently and you may not depending on who, who and how you're partnered, right? I just remember that being very freeing. And then when I met my husband, we talked about that together saying, okay, for this five years, like we always had an upside person. Like one of us had to have a job to pay the bills. And one of us, like I did a startup at a business school where I was paid nothing, but I had a giant equity stake, right? He was then a television writer. And then he started to take Like we've always done. And then when I, when we kids and I was working full-time at an office, the rhythm didn't work for us having both of us at an office. And I traveled a lot. So he was like, I got to do something where I'm really flexible. Right. And I can work from home. And so I just always found that perspective. And sometimes when you're in it and advice, it's all about these next five years and the belief that if you don't make the right move in this five years, it's going to change your whole. And, and I also think there's a part about life that intervenes, right? I found that really helpful perspective to have. And even now I'm like, I got kind of four to five, five-year careers left in me, <laughs> right? And by the way, one of those might be kicking back on at my beach house in Bowen Heads yes. and, you know, going to Annie's every morning for coffee and Sunbakers for a donut. Like I, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm working full time, but I just think about that. I just found that very, very helpful. What is a life of greatness to you? Oh, such a profound question. Um, You know, I think human decency is so important to me. Mm. And so for me, greatness is unlocked and we can unlock it in each other, providing people the space, whether that's in a friendship or as a parent or as a sibling, where I can stand fully in who I am and I allow you to stand fully in who you are. And so I think for me, a life of greatness is just learning to stand comfortably in your own shoes and self-acceptance, worthiness. And I think when you do that, you, you give permission for other people to do the same. Mm. I don't think people can unlock their full potential if they don't feel seen, worthy, and you can't create that for someone else, but you can create the space and the comfort and the psychological safety to help people find that for themselves. And whether that's an employee or a child as a parent, it's like fully loving yourself and fully loving others in who they are. That to me is a pretty great life. Cause I think that just, that unlocks a lot. Sarah Harden, thank you for being such a trailblazer in everything that you've done, because you know, what you've gone through the ups and the downs has really paved the way for so many others 
to go after you and what you're doing for women with Hello Sunshine is, is honestly unbelievably incredible. So as a woman, thank you so much for everything that you do. I am just so grateful for the conversation today. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm always like, we're all waking up every day putting one foot in front of the other. Mm. And you end up in odd places, but I really appreciate this conversation, Sarah. So thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. If you enjoyed my episode with Sarah, then I know another episode you might like with entrepreneur Laura Henshaw. We discuss imposter syndrome, moving through anxiety and following your dreams. Search A Life of Greatness, Laura Henshaw, wherever you get your podcasts. Listener.